You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 111. This week, I would like to thank Michael, Philip, Andrew, Bobby, Daryl, William, Simon, Allen, Oliver, Philip, that's a different Philip, and Mark, all of whom have chosen to support the podcast on Patreon, just like you can over at patreon.com slash history of the great war, where you can get access to special Patreon only episodes, like the one released this month about the life in occupied territories of France and Belgium during the war. You can also check out my review of The Hunger War by Matthew Richardson over at historyofthegreatwar.com slash thehungerwar. It's the first book review I've written since probably elementary school, but people seem not to hate it, and I find that very encouraging. This week, we begin a new series, four episodes on the Romanian campaign of 1916. Romania would not enter the war until late in 1916, and their path to this decision to enter the war was long and winding, with negotiations with the Entente taking many twists and turns. However, even though the path would be long, once they entered the war, they would be met with a swift and decisive action by the Germans, Austrians, and Bulgarians. This would result in them being for the most part out of the war once again by the end of the year. The story behind this quick exit from the war will be the majority of our topics for the next four episodes. This episode, however, will be focused solely on what the Romanians were doing before 1916, how they came to enter the war, and then what they had available to make war on the scale that 1916 demanded. Next week, we will start with the Romanian attack that they would launch shortly after the declaration. I think that this story is really interesting, and I'm very excited for the next four episodes because it touches on a theater that many books barely even mention. If I'm being completely honest, I didn't even know it existed five years ago before I started this podcast. Before the war, Romania had a lengthy history of alliances with the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. They had signed a new treaty in, 19, in 1883, which they had renewed multiple times, the last being in 1913. The reason that this alliance seemed so strong was because of fear of the Russians. That's what drove the Romanians to an alliance with the Triple Alliance. However, in the years immediately preceding the war, the relationship between Romania and the other countries began to fray. The biggest reason for this was that after the Balkan Wars, and it seems like everything in the Balkans in 1914 is just a reaction to the Balkan Wars, but at that time, Austria did not support Romania's claims when the war was over. Romania was hoping to expand its territory during these wars, and Austria did not put its weight behind these demands. And because of this, Romania began to look elsewhere for allies. 
Now, this did not prevent them from renewing the treaty in 1913, but it did cause them to start having conversations with the French. These conversations began even though the royal family of Romania was related to the Kaiser and was part of the Hohenzollern family tree. This dichotomy of the royal family and public opinion, which always supported the Entente, would end up playing a role in how Romania entered the war and how other countries reacted to it. The French really wanted Romania on their side, or at least to not side with the Germans. And all they had to do to make this happen was to find a way for Romania and Russia to play nice with each other. The two two countries had a rough past, but when the new Romanian prime minister, Bratianu, came into power in January 1914, he favored shifting Romania's orientation to be closer to that of France and Russia. This did not mean that decades of animosity were smoothed over in one day, though, and there were still some rocky times for the Romanian and Russian partnership. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazanov would say that, quote, Romania will try to join the side which proved to be the strongest and which is in a position to promise the greatest profits, end quote. Overall, the Russian attitude was simple. They did not want the Romanians to join the war on the side of the Germans, but they also didn't really want them to join on their side either. Romania and Russia shared a border that is hundreds of kilometers long, and the Russians were concerned that if the Romanians joined in the war and did poorly, then Russia would be on the hook for defending that territory. Up to 1916, they'd been able to use Romania as a sort of shield for their southern border, but this would no longer be the case if they entered the war. This evaluation put very little stock in Romania's military capabilities. Now, the Russian military and the Russian government was wrong about a lot of stuff before 1914, and it was wrong about a lot of stuff during the war as well. However, they were absolutely correct in what's about to happen when it comes to Romania. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So let's start back in 1914. When the war started, King Carol had to tell Germany and Austria that Romania would not be mobilizing its army in an attack against Russia, as the alliance said they should. As soon as this was done, Romania became much more free to shop around to see what they could get for their entry, and also just to see how the tides were flowing before they jumped in. In these efforts, they were led by Prime Minister Ian Bratianu. He led all of the important negotiations with the other countries, and by all accounts was intelligent and well-educated. He would deal directly with many of the representatives sent by the other great powers, instead of letting them be handled by the Romanian diplomatic services and he had the full support of both the king and the liberal majority of parliament in these actions. Because of this, he had a pretty wide berth in which to negotiate, which could best be described as slowly, cautiously, and calculating. Now, what precisely would he be negotiating? Well, Romania, like Bulgaria, Italy, and the Ottoman Empire, was looking for the best deal, and the most appetizing piece of any deal would be parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This became even more appealing after the war continued to drag on, and Austria-Hungary did so poorly. This was something that the Entente could offer, since the idea of completely dismantling the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a topic discussed widely in London and Paris. The discussions of which bits of Austria-Hungary Romania would get would drive many of Romania's actions until it entered the war, and its actions once it did declare war. The first real offer was brought to Romanian attention on October 1st, 1914 by the Russian government. The goal of this offer was to get Romania to agree to enter the war, but only at a time of Russia's choosing. 
the Russians hoped to convince the Romanians to play their part in the final destruction of Austria-Hungary by unleashing them at the opportune moment to cause the greatest damage. However, when they opened the negotiation door an inch to discuss this with the Romanians, they pushed through the door completely. Shortly after giving the message to the Romanians, the Russian diplomats got a response. In this response, Romanian demands went far beyond just the territory that the Russians were offering, or the territory that was made up primarily of ethnic Romanians. Sure, the Romanians wanted those territories too, and they were most of Transylvania and southern Bukovina. However, they also wanted northern Bukovina, which was primarily populated by Ukrainians, areas along the Tisza River, populated by Hungarians, and the, tr- the territory of Banat, which was mostly Serbians. This was a lot of territory, and the Russians were so put off that they mostly dropped the subject until the middle of 1915. This was all part of the game, though. Bratianu was asking a very high price, probably completely understanding that it was highly unlikely that Romania would get all that it wanted, but that was okay. That's part of the negotiations. The Romanians probably were never going to enter the war at this point anyway. It probably looked far from certain on what would happen. And one piece of the puzzle that the Romanians were great at was keeping secrets from other nations, and this would play a role in the next two years. Until they entered the war, the Entente was still in doubt as to whether it would ever happen, and the Central Powers would believe right up until the war was declared that they were not going to enter. This deception would go on for almost two years, and it would be a master class. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 1915, and right around the time that the German advance through Poland into Russia had reached its zenith, Russia was forced to once again go back to the Romanians to reopen discussions. The Russian mindset when opening these discussions is important. They were hunting for something, anything, that could stop the advance of their enemies. On July 21st, this resulted in the Russians telling the Romanian representative in St. Petersburg that the Russians would agree to all of their demands. 
However, even this did not make the Romanians jump instantly into the war. Instead, they decided that maybe now wasn't the time. If you look at the situation, it's not harm to blame them. The Russians were in full retreat and looked to never recover. The Romanian ambassador to Russia could see what the Russians were doing and would write that, quote, After Italy entered the war, and while the Russians were in the Carpathians, we were told that our help was of no special importance. On the very day that Shemeshaw fell, they let us understand that we might be granted some area along the border. However, after Lvov was evacuated, the rate of concessions escalated. Almost on the day that the Germans occupied Warsaw, all of the demands were met, end quote. Because of these factors, instead of signing the agreement, he said that he had to go back and check with his government, and after doing so, he informed the Russians that he had been instructed not to sign the agreement. At this point, Bratianu was playing for time, and it was just simply not a good time to join the Russian war effort. They were in full retreat. You don't jump on the team of the time, you don't jump on the team that's losing. As these discussions dragged on, the situation changed again, pushing Romania further away from joining. This was the Bulgarian entry into the conflict, and with their entry and the defeat of the Serbians, Romania was now facing not one but two very dangerous neighbors, both of which seemed to be still full of fight. A key role in the climax of all this maneuvering was played by the Brusilov Offensive. It was during the offensive that it looked like the Entente's fortunes were finally changing, and the offensive seemed to be the first of many successes, with the Austrians appearing to be on the edge of collapse. It was due to this that, during the summer, Bratianu decided that it was the right moment. However, now it was time for the Russians to begin having doubts again. They believed that the Brusilov offensive along the fr- because of the Brusilov offensive, the front would stabilize. And so maybe the situation was back to Romanian entry being a liability instead of a benefit. This was just reinforced when Alexiev, the Russian army leader, found out that the Romanians wanted Russian troops sent to help them out as soon as war was declared. This negative mindset from Alexiev would slowly change as it appeared that the Brusilov offensive was slowing down and was not going to bring about the great results that were hoped for after it began. He was also getting pressure from Jaffer and other Western leaders to get on board with the Romanian hype train. Alexiev and other Russian leaders would eventually be persuaded, and after this long winding process that lasted over two years, it was time to define the exact terms under which Romania would enter the war. On July 4th, Bratianu decided that now was the time, and announced that he was ready to sign an alliance. However, he put down three conditions upon which that offer was predicated. First, the Entente had to supply both arms and munitions. Second, the Allies must take offensive actions on other fronts to prevent the diversion of troops against Romania, which also meant that Russia could not voluntarily retreat from the area of Galatia that it had captured during the Brusilov Offensive. Third, Romania needed unconditional security against a Bulgarian attack. This last one was the sticky wicket, in the list of all the demands, because the other two things were easy. First, it meant that the Romanians would need Russian troops, and they wanted 200,000 of them to put on their southern border, which was up against Bulgaria. It also meant that the French and British troops in Salonika needed to attack north and into Bulgaria itself. It was this final condition upon which the events of the next several months would revolve around. For the Russian troops, when pressed, they said that they could promise to send no more than 50,000. 
this was not even close to the amount that the Romanians had planned. And they basically wanted to completely offset the Bulgarian troops with Russians. And that just wasn't going to happen with only 50,000. To protest this reduction, Bratianu threatened to not declare war on Bulgaria at all, which was just a comical threat for a reason that will soon become apparent. As for the attack out of Salonika, the term sign specifically stated that the troops there had to begin an offensive against the Bulgarians no more than eight days after Romania entered the war. The Romanians believed that this committed those troops to an energetic and prolonged offensive to try and break through the Bulgarian army. However, the French and British interpreted it as just an attempt to hold down the Bulgarian forces currently on that front, not an actual concerted effort with, like, goals and stuff. This misunderstanding, or perhaps more appropriately, this underhanded change by the Entente, would have serious ramifications for Romania almost immediately. As for what the Romanians expected for their contribution, well, those demands remained roughly the same. They wanted Transylvania, Bukovina, southern Galatia, the Banat, and some other Hungarian territory as well. It was expected that all of this would be given to the Romanians in the peace treaty, at least in theory. In reality, it seems the Entente, while they did sign the agreement, did not intend to fully honor it. And in fact, the agreement with Romania, as well as those with other countries, would be a serious problem in 1919, when it came down for the Entente to start paying its debts. Regardless of all of these things that were in the future, on August 17th, the final agreement was signed. Romania was only obliged to declare war on Austria-Hungary. However, as soon as it did, Germany, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire declared war on Romania, making Romania's hopes of just fighting on a single front a fool's hope, although not an unexpected one. War was officially declared at 9 p.m. on August 27th, when a courier delivered the official declaration in Vienna. Romanian mobilization had already begun, but would not be publicly proclaimed until the afternoon of the 28th, which meant that almost instantly 800,000 troops, comprising 23 divisions, were on their way either to the border or to their stations as part of the Romanian war plan. Initially, the declaration seemed like a disaster for the Germans, and it was the end of Falkenhayn as chief of the general staff, as he had just recently assured the Kaiser that Romania was not going to enter the war, and even if it did, the declaration would not come until at least September, probably later. However, just in a general sense, it seemed like another huge negative for Germany in a year of negatives. Yet another enemy, yet another army against them, yet more troops marching towards their territory. We will discuss Germany's response in a bit more detail next episode, but for right now, let's t continue talking about Romania. After its long neutrality, Romania was finally in the war, but the question was, what did it have to go to war with? As I said, there would be in total 800,000 men mobilized in August 1916, which would form into 23 divisions. These divisions were not very uniform, though. They ranged anywhere from 17,000 to 27,000 men, and the men in them were mostly from the peasant class, at least half of which could not read or write. They were, however, accustomed to hardship and sacrifice, and most people were in agreement that they were good raw material to build an army out of if it had good organization, equipment, and leadership. They did not have good organization, equipment, or leadership. First, there was a critical shortage of officers, with only 820 captains trying to manage 1,700 companies. 
These officers usually had almost no experience, and unlike in Western armies where promotion from within the ranks of volunteers was a good way to bolster the officer corps, especially at the lower level, in Romania this was a challenge since so many men were illiterate. Overall, it might have been better for the army if the Romanians had mobilized less men than the 23 divisions, because it would have allowed a higher officer, machine gun, and artillery concentration per infantry soldier. The higher officers were just as unprepared for the situation, and this is evident by their tactics. Generally, the Russian army would go to war in late 1916 in much the same way that armies had done elsewhere in 1914. Lots of frontal assault, lots of reliance on Elan for their troops, and not much of anything else. There was some awareness and some literature provided around the changes that had been happening on the Western Front. However, these were generally discounted by Romanian officers as either not indicative of the situation for their army or simply too difficult for them to put into place with their inexperienced conscripts. So instead of changing their plans, they just doubled down on the pre-existing beliefs in human valor and bravery, much like the French had done in 1914, and it would have similar disastrous results. Before the war, the Romanian economy had not allowed for a full retooling of the military, and it was one of the lowest spending per capita in all of Europe. This meant that in 1916 there were serious deficiencies in critical items like machine guns, with the best regiments having only a handful, and many reserve formations having none at all. This when compared with the 18-24 to 24 that the Germans would be bringing with them. They also had outdated and obsolete artillery guns. Even if you included the most outdated model, they could still only field 50% of the field artillery and 30% of the heavy artillery of their opponents, and this even included the Austrians and Bulgarians. This was not just the Germans. They also had no mountain troops and had only two batteries of modern mountain artillery. This is quite bad when you realize that 600 kilometers of the Romanian frontier, and most of it, most of which was guaranteed to be a point of fighting with the Austrians, was along the Carpathian Mountains, in the mountains. All of these deficiencies combined meant that the Romanians would be heavily outgunned on all sides, while also facing armies with field experience. Even though Bulgarian units, or at least the officers of those units, often had experience fighting in Serbia and Salonika for up to a year, and certainly knew their way around a trench. Finally, we come to what could have been the great equalizer, leadership. The Romanian general staff had been created in 1882, but it had only been an ATNEAT organization until 1907, when it was established permanently. It had a lot of outdated ideas, and the body generally shunned outside influence or intrusions into its plans, all of which was bad. But let's not mince words here. The Romanians were in an almost impossible situation. They had an inexperienced army, they did not have enough guns, agreements with the Entente prevented the most prudent course of action, which would have been to stand on the defensive, and Romanian public opinion also prevented that course of action. A Romanian professor would say that, quote, public opinion had been molded for the invasion of Transylvania. No one could have been able to impose another direction on the Romanian flag. These facts shackled the general staff to a risky attack, and that risk simply would not pay off. But I don't necessarily know if it's their fault. Our final topic for today is the Russians. The Russians would play a part in all the planning and agreements, really everything up to this point. Even though Alexiev 
would never believe that bringing the Romanians into the war was going to be a great move, he was still obliged to support them once they did. However, they would never work well together. Alexeyev would send less troops than the 200,000 the Romanians wanted, with just a total of 50,000 men being sent in the initial wave. There was also a general feeling of superiority in the Russian officer corps, a feeling that the Romanians were worthless. As these types of feelings often do, this trickled down into the rank and file, and before the war the Russians and Romanians had not gotten along very well anyway, and while at the state level they had reconciled, on the individual level there was still a good amount of contempt between the Russians and Romanian infantry. They generally felt that their Romanian counterparts were poor soldiers, and this was not helped by the first experience of some Russian units. There were multiple stories of Romanian units surrendering to Russian ones, believing that they, will, they were the Bulgarian enemies. These negative feelings then resulted in negative actions. The Russian troops in Romania heavily requisitioned supplies from the countryside. It was to the point where it was probably more accurate to say they were sacking the Romanian countryside, not exactly the behavior of allies. The leadership also refused to support Romanian attacks out of Romania, and instead they wanted the Romanians to give up most of their country so that a defense could be better organized. All of these problems would create what might be best described as a toxic work environment, and would only get worse when the action started. Speaking of the action, that will be the topic of our next episode, where the Romanians bravely thrust their armies into enemy territory, and then just sort of stop, because why not?